start. We got to start on time. I'm all about fellowship, but not right now. You got to start. Let's see here. Get some handouts going. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind. And you'll probably notice for the handouts that I'm passing out to you about Deuteronomy today is that I'm not looking to labor you with, with notes the whole time. I want you to be able to take your own and pull what you can from it. Um, it's not saying that we're not going to cover some good information here, uh, but it is to say that I want to give you guys the freedom to do that. Now, just so you know, um, Mitch is recording uh, two. There you go. Mitch is recording our Sunday school sessions, but he's not going to be posting them online. Uh, but he does want everybody to have, let's see here, five. Wants everybody to have a copy just in case you missed it. And so if you missed one of the past two lessons, you can. I'm almost out. Okay, yeah, I am. I'm almost. Uh, we'll get to you. Calm down. Uh, we might need to do that. Let's see. Three. Uh, it's on the computer. Here, I can give you these two. You can set them side by side on there and just copy. There we go. We'll, yes. Oh, you're going to share one? Okay, great. Fantastic. Uh, let's do just 10 should be fine. I don't think we'll have over that, but there we go. Who else? There we go. Everybody else good? And everybody still has their Bible from church, right? Okay, just make sure. Anybody need a pen? It's always, okay, just make sure. Baby, you got one? I love it. That's great. All right. So if you need to catch up on the lessons, Mitch can get those to you on CD. Just let him know that you need it. It takes about five minutes to burn it, and he will take care of it. So, we ready? We got the thumbs up. I like it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, uh, that every amount of it is true. We pray, God, you bless our time, and that the Spirit would lead us into all understanding. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, what can somebody tell me about the book of Deuteronomy? Don't look at your notes from last time. What can somebody tell me? All right. Last session was a success. Yes, sir. Yep. Okay, so it's a second giving of the law, but it's the same law. It doesn't change. And Moses is going to communicate it to the people before they come into the promised land. Exactly. What else? What else do we know? That's it. Okay, so we have a survey of early history from the Exodus. There's something very important I gave you last week that I had you go through your Bibles and mark. Remember S-V. S-V. Who wrote it down? Suzerain Vassal Treaty. Yes, let's cover that for just a second. 
What you find out is that the book of Deuteronomy has actually been organized according to a structure known as a suzerain vassal treaty. Now, if you weren't able to be here last week, again, let Mitch know. He can get you the second, uh, the second uh, week's study in that. What a suzerain vassal treaty, a suzerain is a mighty king or a dominant king or an overall king is who he is. And the vassals are considered lesser kings. And what they found in an archaeological dig right at the base of what tended to be the edge of Assyria, they actually were able to unearth in the early 1900s tons and tons and tons of cuneiform tablets, of these clay tablets that were left over from Hittite civilization. They had had no record of the Hittites except in the scriptures before them. And then archaeology unveils it and validates everything that was already in the Bible. But they had contract, treaties, receipts, all this stuff. And what they found was is a suzerain vassal treaty. A larger king, a greater king, had come into a contract agreement with lesser kings. The lesser kings would worship him, trust in him, move in his direction always, be part of his kingdom. Their armies would be submissive to them. And in turn, he would turn around and protect them, provide for them, care for them, have their well-being. They were under the umbrella and protection of the greater king. That is the idea, okay? So what you find is when you look at the book of Deuteronomy, it is actually written in the exact same literary structure that a suzerain vassal treaty was written in. Very important to understand. Now, you're saying, I'm still confused. I don't know. Again, get the second lesson. We walked through it. We talked about what verses to mark. You can do that. You'll be caught up. And we're not really going to be plunging into that for probably the next week or two. But Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, turn there real quick. Deuteronomy 1. And let's remind real quick, what are reasons why we would study the Old Testament? It serves as an example to us in order that we would be persevering, that we would not sin the same way that the people of the Old Testament did, that we would be responding to Yahweh favorably is the idea. The, the, the whole idea of studying the Old Testament is to keep us from sin so that we would persevere as people who have hope. So chapter 1, verse 1, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hezeroth and Dizahab. Now, last week we had the map up on the wall and we saw where that was and it was located. Think up here, the Sea of Galilee. Think of what you know, Mediterranean Seas right here. I'm trying to do it backwards, so forgive me if I mess it up. Mediterranean Seas here, Egypt is down here. You have Israel coming up. And if you remember the three provinces that we would have that we would know from Jesus' time would be Judah, Samaria, Galilee, right? Everybody got that? Okay, think along those lines so that you know what you're dealing with. The Sea of Galilee, the what? Anybody know? What flows out of it? Jordan River into the Dead Sea. And so the Dead Sea, here's what you have. You have the Moabites here, and you have the Edomites here, okay? Now, who are the Edomites from? Anybody know? Esau, okay? Anybody know who the Moabites are from? Moab. What's that? What's that? Lot? What? <laughs> Just making something up. Awesome. Anyway, this section here between Edom and Moab 
right here's the Dead Sea. This is where they're at. They're on this edge looking to cross over and come into this land that God had promised to Abraham years and years and years ago. There are three things in the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to deal with this in a few weeks. Three things in the Abrahamic covenant. He promised to make him plentiful. As much as the sand on the shore, stars in the sky, right? He's going to have offspring. He also promised to make him a blessing to everyone. Everyone that comes in contact with Israel is going to be blessed in some way. And the ultimate blessing coming through the Messiah dying for the sins of the world. But the other one and the whole thing that prophecy hinges on, all end times prophecy, as far as a Jew is concerned, hinges on this one promise. And that is, I will give you a land. It is yours. Now, today you hear about this whole conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? And you hear about this whole thing about the the Palestinians need a Palestinian state. Are they going to be satisfied with a Palestinian state? No. What do they want? Does anybody know? They want all of it. In fact, I think it was about 2008, at a meeting of the United Nations in New York, Ahmoud Ahmadinejad is his name who is over Iran at the time, made the statement, we will not rest, the Arab nations will not rest until Israel has been obliterated. That's what they want. They're not looking to share land. They say it's theirs. Now, where did this problem come from? There's a guy named Abram, right? And his wife said, hey, I can't have kids, but I got this saucy little maidservant right here, and she looks pretty fertile. So how about you going and spending the night with her and whatever kids she has, we'll just embrace her. She'll be ours. Okay. Uh, sounds good, baby. Whatever. Odd, right? But you knew that Sarah's a little bit off of her rocker anyway, right? But notice, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's unbelief is what it is. It's a failure to trust the promise that God had made. Through you, I will bring about a seed. It's unbelief playing out. And because of that, we now have the Arab races and the Jewish races. We've had problems in the Middle East ever since then. We have Ishmael, we have Isaac. So this is where these problems come from, okay? Now, look what it says, verse 2. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb, that's the mount where they were, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now, pause for a second. Moses has just written out the pathway that they have taken to get where they need to be in the promised land. That is extremely important that everybody sees that. He is letting you know the trail that they went across. And how long did it take? What was it? We left off with this last week. 11 days. But look at verse 3. In the what? 40th year on the first day of the 11th month. Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give to them. Now, pause. How in the world do you get from traveling somewhere in 11 days to it taking you 40 years to arrive to your destination? Does everybody see that there's a little bit of humor in here? Does everybody see it's it's kind of sarcastic in what it deals with? Okay. So the whole idea is it could have took you 11 days. It ended up taking you 40 years. I don't know about you, but that is not the train I want to be on. I want to be on the 11-day train. What in the world happened? And so, in order to deal with that, I want you to take out your pen. If you want to write it on your notes or in your Bible, right next to verse 2, 
you need to write Numbers 13 and 14. Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And we need to go back and look at the reason why this is such a mess. What happened to extend this journey for so long? So after you write that in, go ahead and take a gander at Numbers 13. And it might take us today and, and next week, because we only have 45 minutes to go through all of this, but it's important that we take our time, we observe everything that's going on, we look at the principles where things went bad, and we especially learn from it. Very sobering message. Numbers chapter 13. It's to your left, past the dust and the cobwebs, and Herbert the spider that's hanging out in Leviticus, right? He's waiting for you. You don't have to go that far. Numbers chapter 13. Everybody there? All right, here we go. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. Pause. If you underline in your Bible, there's where you need to underline which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. Only Yahweh can give the land. He is the divine real estate broker, and he gives it to whomever he sees fit. Now notice, not only is he the one that has the ability to give the land, but it is totally within the stream of his promise. Isn't his promise to Abraham, and I will give you this land? See where you're sojourning? Everybody remember that? Everybody remember when he parted ways with Lot and he said, Lot, choose wherever you want. And Lot looked out and said, you know what? Everything over there looks as fertile as can be and I'm not going to have any problems surviving. And it was towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's go that direction. After Lot leaves, God tells Abraham, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, and look to the west. I'm going to give you all this. Doesn't matter what Lot chose, I'm giving it to you. Okay? So we have this Abrahamic promise of land over and over and over. Here it is again reiterated for the people. This is important for us to understand. Why? Because if God said it's going to happen, everything is now contingent upon his word. Everything, everything. If you don't ever understand anything between now and when I die, get this, everything is contingent upon his word and only his word is sure. So it says here, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone, now watch this, a leader among them. Now think about what he's saying. Number one, where are we at timeline-wise? Now that we've read these couple of verses, where are we at? Are we out of the Exodus? Have we received the law? Yes. And where are we at? This is when the first generation is getting ready to cross over into the promised land. Now stop for a second, because the book of Deuteronomy picks up with the second generation getting ready to cross over into the promised land. So notice we've got two parallel events that are 40, precisely 38 years, separating from themselves. And they're saying it could have took you 11 days, it took you 40 years. What happened here? Here's what we're going to see. So first thing we're going to do in order to get into the land, we need to send in spies. What in the world's going on? We got to know what we're dealing with. We got to know who's out there. We got to know where they live. We got to know if we're going to be able to survive. We need all of this information. 
And God says, the people that you are to send, look at their qualifications. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, one person from each of the 12 tribes. Now, with the exception of who? Who did not go? We know this, right? Who? Levites. The Levites wouldn't go. And remember, whenever Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, come in, those actually were able to fill in the hole of Joseph and Levi to make up the 12 tribes. So notice, one man from each tribe. Each one's going to be technically playing for their own team, but they're all playing for Israel is the idea. But it's not just that. Look what the other qualification is. Everyone a what? Leader among them. Do they have a sense of responsibility? Do they have a sense of accountability? Okay, imagine that you are a leader out of one of the tribes and you're getting ready to go spy out this land because you're getting ready to be responsible for the information that causes your entire tribe of people that are with you to move out into this land. What are some things that you're thinking of right now? What would you take into consideration when you're getting ready to set out on this mission? What are some things you're looking for? I mean, Moses is going to tell us what to look for here in a minute. How strong are they? Why would you be concerned about the strength of the people that are already in the land? What's that? Could defeat you. You got to know if you can whoop them, right? If I'm going to come in the land, we better be able to whoop these people. Now, here's a question. Does that really matter? Oh, good job. Notice it doesn't matter at all, does it? Why? Who's fighting? God. Yay! You guys got something that they didn't understand. Think about it. Now, what are your personal concerns setting out on a journey like this? Because this time in the land, spying it out is going to take 40 days to do it. What are your personal concerns? What's that? Is it farmable? Are we, going, we might get in there and conquer everything, but can we live there? That's a good point. Are we going to be able to be sustained? Here's the question. Does it matter? Why? Because God's the one who sustained you. Yeah. Is it as good as God says it is? How does God describe it in the Old Testament? A land flowing with milk and honey. Mm-mm, right? Laverne said, amen. Right? Some of your Wisconsin translations say cheese and honey, right? But notice, flowing with milk and honey. In fact, when you find it, this is something he was telling them before the exodus ever took place. I have promised with your forefather Abraham to take you to a land, and this land flows with milk and honey. Now, when you're in slavery conditions, that seems like a pipe dream. That seems like an end that is never going to be met. And we often allow the current circumstances that we're dealing with to deflate our morale and get our eyes off of what God has promised by his word. It is so important to get. Let me ask you this. As a spy trudging off into the country, do you have a family to be concerned about? And it's not just wife, kids, husband, kids, is it? It's probably aunts, uncles, grandparents, great-grandparents. I mean, you got a lot going on. You know, you might be scared what Buford down at the lodge is going to think of you if you make a bad decision, that kind of thing. Scary times. And the last thing you want to do is come back and let everybody down. There might be some pressure here. These were men that were chosen leaders in their tribes and have proven themselves in some way of leadership, okay? So now they're being sent not just to spy out the land, but to be tested. And here's what I love about this. 
This whole Deuteronomy thing is, is shaping up just dandy with what we're going to be studying in James. I love it. It's interesting how God does all that stuff where he just goes like a jacket. Just zip it on up. It's real good. So notice what happens here. Verse 3. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord. He did it just as God said to do. He didn't waver from it. All of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. Now, we would normally skip over this, but we're not going to because of some significance that these names have. So watch this. These were their names from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zakur. We like that guy, right? We don't know who that is, do we? But here's a question. Why do you think he's recording this? Why would Moses take the time to write down who went on this expedition? Details. And what do you know about details? It's truth. Liars don't give details. Notice this is documented history. You want to know who went over into the promised land and searched it out? It's these guys. These are the guys who are accountable. So notice, verse 5, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Now, Caleb is very important because Caleb's name, Caleb's name in Hebrew means dog. How many people like that? Yeah, everybody's like, what? Caleb's a dog? But here's what it means. What are dogs known for? Faithfulness. Loyalty. That's what his name really meant. He was as loyal as a dog is to its master. Notice his name wasn't Cat. Hey, take it up with God. Anyway, so notice the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. Hosea means salvation is what it means. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, from the tribe of Manasseh. Notice that. Manasseh replaces Joseph because of his sons, Ephraim and Joseph. The tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Shushi, or Sushi, or Sushi, whatever one you like. The tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gimali, uh, the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael. How did Michael end up in the midst of all that? What is going on there? Normal guy's name, right? He must have been English. No, it's a Hebrew name. Uh, moving on. It says here, verse 14, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabib, the son of Vopsi, and from the tribe of Gad, I don't mean to make fun, but man, sometimes it's just messing with you. From the tribe of Gad, Geuel, the son of Machi. There we are. Now, anybody you know in your family is pregnant? Expecting? Baby names right here. Jamie. Yes, ma'am. Hmm. Why? That's a great that's a great question. If God is going to be the sustainer and deliverer and the one that they are going to get all sustenance from, the one that's going to provide, the one that's going to fight for them in order for them to take it over, why in the world would God command 
these people as leaders of their tribe to go over and to spy it out. Now, let me say this real quick before you dare answer this. Think about this real quick. This is the brick wall that we often hit when we misinterpret what we mean by saying God is sovereign. When we say God is sovereign, here's the conclusion we come to. Since he knows everything that's going to happen anyway, and there's no sense in going on about anything because he changes his mind, what does it matter what we do? That, and that, that mindset and that thinking is, number one, completely unbiblical about who God is and who he reveals himself to be. That is, a, that is a human conclusion of what he's like, and what it does is it alleviates us from any responsibility or accountability, and so therefore we don't share the gospel with people because we conclude, well, if they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved, whatever, God's going to do whatever he wants to do. And we just sit around in sticks in the mud. Who cares about the Great Commission? Why would Jesus ever give the Great Commission? What does it matter if we go out and talk to everybody and win disciples and make disciples and all this stuff, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? God's going to do what he's going to do. And we just negate our responsibility for God. Here's a question. Why would God send them out if he's going to do everything? To test them. To test them. Understand this. Anytime that God calls you and I to obedience, it is a test. It is a test. 2003. No, 2006. 2005. 2005, I'm a youth pastor. I was an awesome youth pastor. I took the youth ministry from 26 to 4. That's how great I was. I remember having the meeting with the parents, and I said, I'm not a youth group guy. I'm not playing icebreakers with your kids. I'm not here to do overnights and melt candy bars and diapers and make them eat it and weird things, whatever y'all do. It's weird. Youth group, youth ministry stuff is weird. I said, but if you want your kids to know the Bible, I'm all about that. They said, fantastic, and they hired me. And then five months later, they were mad because I wasn't doing icebreakers with their kids. Well, your kids know more about the Word. Interesting. But then we got the call to step out and go plant a church. No. Well, how come? It's too risky. I mean, I live in a house for free. Somebody takes my garbage to the curb for free. Somebody mows my yard for free. I don't have to pay an electric bill. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have a water payment. I get a yearly salary for free. I love it. Why would I want to give any of that up to go get a mortgage and go get an electric bill payment and have to mow my own yard? <laughs> See, you know it was really keeping me in disobedience here, right? It was the lawn, the lawn. And so I told him, no, we won't go do it. And God made my life miserable for a year because I was disobeying because he put that opportunity in front of me and I disobeyed. And so we finally said yes and very unsure about what in the world was ever going to happen. And I remember this, and forgive me if this is too crass for you guys. I remember one night going to bed and we had said yes and I am scared out of my mind. And I grabbed my wife's hand right before we went to bed and I said, sweetheart, I am so sorry for whatever hell I'm getting ready to put us through was I walking forward in unbelief? Very much so. Not trusting God. Not trusting God for what he called us to be. And I'm scared out of my mind. 
And that's when you turn 30 and you stare at the ceiling and wonder what in the world you've done with your life. That's where I was at that time. I'm like, I'm 30 years old. What in the world? My life's half over. Good grief. And then I came here and met you guys and realized a lot of people live past 30 or 60, right? So, just kidding. But in doing that, in doing that, and finally going out, we had no income. I mean, we had, she was working, she had income. We had, we had nothing. All of a sudden, we got a mortgage. All of a sudden, I got an electric bill. All of a sudden, I got a water bill. All of a sudden, I'm having to take my own trash out. I've got to buy a mower. What in the world? And you know what? We lacked for nothing. God provided everything we ever needed as we just walked forward, submitted to him, trusted him, and he really taught us a lot. And you, here's what's interesting. You know what he used that opportunity to teach us for right now? For when all of this came together about me coming in contact with you guys through the most craziest circumstances in the world, starting that whole conversation. And I remember we looked at each other and we realized, let's not approach this like God taught us last time. Let's learn from that and be obedient and say, God, wherever you want us to go, we'll go. Let's just do it. And I tell you, we have to learn from those tests and those trials. We have to. God is testing them. Yes, I will provide for you. Yes, I will take care of you. But here's the problem. We don't always believe that. We don't, oh, oh yeah, I know who God is. God does this, God does No, do we really? Or is he just kind of a whatever God? You see, this is that lack of humility that we often have, of not really taking him at his word. How do you successfully pass the test that God gives you? It's real simple. Believe him. What did he say? That's right. Move on. It's that simple. It's that simple in theory. It is that hard in practice. Because we rational, well, God doesn't know what I'm going through. Well, he just can't see it from my view. We used to know how hard it is. Well, he's never been here before. Don't you love the verse that says we have a great high priest who can identify with us in our weakness? And then what does it say after that? It calls us to the throne of grace boldly. Boldly. Your high priest can identify with you. He knows your struggles. Now come to him boldly. You have the right to be there. Interesting. Notice what we're dealing with in this situation. It's a test is what it is. Verse 16. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. But Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, what is it? Joshua. Or to, to give you the Hebrew pronunciation, Yahoshea is his name, or what later on became the condensed form, Yeshua. And why does it add the Yaha at the beginning of it? The reason is, is because that is the tetragrammatron. Does everybody know what, it, what I'm saying when I say that? Okay, are we, are we all close here? We all good? Okay, if I was wearing a t-shirt, I would show you I have it tattooed on my chest. But what it is, is it's the name of Yahweh, is what it is. And it is Y, if we were to do it in English, Y-H-W-H. Hebrew had no vowels at that time. And scribes would not dare pronounce his name. Not at all. They would never pronounce his name. In fact, whenever they were going through and they were copying the manuscripts, 
they would take the pen they had, lay it down, go wash up real thoroughly, pick up a special pen, write the name of Yahweh in copying the scriptures, break the pen, go and wash again, and then continue back on what they were doing to transcribe. That's how much reverence they had for this name Yahweh. Okay, so the beginning of it, when we talk about Yahoshea, is his name. Yahweh is the beginning. God is the idea. But what did Hosea mean? Anybody remember? What does it mean? Salvation. So what does his name now mean? Why does Moses call him that? Because he's saying Yahweh is salvation. Anybody know what Jesus' name means? Hebrew, it's Yeshua. In Greek, it's Jesus. What does his name mean? It's the exact same thing. It's a condensed form of Yahoshea. Yeshua means the Lord. God is salvation. The exact same thing. So we see that glimpse here. It's interesting that Moses calls him that because if we know anything about this, the next book after Deuteronomy is what? What is it? Joshua. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, what is it here? It's Joshua. Exactly. And it talks about the salvation of the Lord. Joshua assumes command after Moses, and he's the one who actually leads the children into the land. Verse 17, when Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, now watch, here's his instructions. They're very clear. Go up there into the Negev. Then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like. Notice that. Here's where you're to go, and here's what I want you to pay attention to. Agriculture. Is it a land flowing with milk and honey? Has God been telling us the right thing all of this time? Notice what he moves on and says. And whether the people, the inhabitants, who live in it are strong or weak. Can we just step on them, or do we need to whoop them? What needs to happen here? Whether they are few or many, what is their caliber and number? Do they all have... Super muscles, or are they weaklings? Do we have 10,000, or do we have a million? What are we looking at here? He says here, verse 19, How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? Is it inhabitable? Could we survive there? Everything is logistical here. What are we dealing with? Uh, how many of you have worked in military? Okay, and done something with any battle-type stuff. Any of you? Any battle scenarios? Don't they usually have a plan don't they usually give you statistics? Aren't they usually saying, here's what you're going to expect, here's what you're up against, here's what you're looking at, here's what you want to watch out for? Football does that. You think the Packers go out and they're like, we're playing Cincinnati today, we just know that they wear red and black. That's all we know. Go for it, guys. Woo! No! No, when Aaron Rodgers comes up to that line and he sees something he doesn't like and he starts yelling out an audible, what's he doing? He's changing the play because he sees what they're pulling on defense and he's like, nope, we're going to fall right into that. You move here, you move here, you move here, and I'm passing here. And they get around it. You've got to have a plan. We're setting up the logistics of the situation. So notice, it moves on here. Verse 19, how's the land they live in? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps? Do they just have tents around a fire? Or is it fortifications? Now, pause. Does anybody know anything about ancient Near Eastern history? About buildings and stuff like that? Man, they could fortify a city. You know what it means to be fortified in a city? What, what, what does it mean? The brick walls, number one, right? Got some kind of stone, brick, something that they put together to make walls. But here's the amazing thing that they would do in order that people in their city would be safe. It's not just the height of the wall. It's the depth of the wall. Some walls could be 50 feet high and 30 feet thick. 
That way, if somebody scaled it, they still had to run 10 yards before they could ever get to you. Those are prime pickings with a spear, right? Get that guy and that guy. They really set themselves up for protection. They understood if they get over the wall and it's just one silly little like that, it's only this deep. They're over and you're dead. So what did they do? They thought through it. Let's make it even thicker. And the thicker your wall is, the more stability you have all around your city. Everybody see how that works? What are we dealing with here? What are we going to have to scale? What's the battle plan? Verse 20, how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Is it plenty or few? Are the trees? Are there trees in it or not? That's a good thing to know. Where does the water flow? Why? Because if your trees are abundant, you know you can find water somewhere, and everybody needs water to survive. Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now watch this little editorial comment. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. You think God had them there for a reason? Moses is saying when you go over, you should have the beginning of what we could harvest from that. Bring back evidence of what this looks like. Why? Because here's one thing that Yahweh understands and that Moses understands that the actions speak a lot louder than the words when you're trying to muster up the courage of a people to step into an area they've never stepped in before. And so if you come back and say, look, look at these grapes. They're huge. All of a sudden, you've got some kind of evidence that says, whoa, okay, okay. Evidence is helping me out. God's telling the truth. We can do this. We can move forward. God knows they need this. Now, verse 21 so they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob and Labo Hamath. Now, hold on just one second. Don't everybody lose your minds about that. Watch this. Uh, when they had gone up to the Negev, they came to Hebron. Now, stop there. Hebron is an easy place to identify because it seems to be the name of a city that successed past the time of the conquest of the land. So I want you to do me a favor. Take your Bible and turn back to your maps. And I want you to look at probably the first or the second map that you have in your Bible. You'll probably have something like the biblical world of the patriarchs is usually what they call it. You see here. And if you look, you're going to have it. It should give you something where you're going to have the Mediterranean Sea. They call it the Great Sea. You look over to the right, you'll see probably the Persian Gulf. And you've got the area that moves up to the left-hand side, up the coast there. If you notice, you can see over to the side the Dead Sea there, kind of in the middle. And everybody see where you've got Kadesh Barnea down there? Everybody see that? Down at the south of the, of the Dead Sea, everybody see that? I know this is like super interesting stuff, I get it. But I want you guys to see geographically what's going on here. But notice if you go up to the Dead Sea, almost towards the top and to the left, you'll see Hebron. Does everybody see that? Hebron is about 35 miles south of what we later come to know as Jerusalem is where it's at. Now, here's the thing. Where are they encamped at? Everybody see Zoar? Everybody see that? Z-O-A-R? Everybody see that? Where they're encamped at in order to get into this, they're a little bit south of where that's at. Notice that they covered a large plot of land. Turn over to your second map and see if it blows it up some. It'll say something like the Exodus route and the conquest of Canaan. Do you have that map as your second map there? Okay, notice you'll be able to see this a little bit clearer here. And notice where you have the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. Everybody see to the right of it? It's Moab. Underneath it is Edom. Everybody see that? The wilderness of Zin. There's Kadesh Barnea. 
And notice if you move up there into the Dead Sea and over to the left just a little bit, you'll see Hebron. Does everybody see that? Notice they traveled as far into there. That's a definite sustaining marker where we know where they got into. That's very important to see. So I wanted everybody to just grab that. And everybody turn back with me. Two numbers, what we're dealing with. And I want to show you something very interesting. Verse 22, when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, please underline his name, the descendants of Anak were. Now look at this editorial comment. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zone in Egypt. It lets you know when this time was. Remember, Moses is probably writing this either at the time or looking back, reflecting on it. Now verse 23. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol. And here's the reason why it's called Eshkol. Does everybody see the little number in your Bible and go over to the margin? What's it say? Cluster is the idea. Eshkol means cluster. Now notice we're not told what this valley was originally called. The reason why it's called the valley of clusters is because this is where they end up pulling the grapes from. Notice it says the valley of Eshkol. And from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and figs. Two guys carried this probably on their shoulders, stretched out about this far apart, and the grape cluster, single cluster, they make a point of it, dangles there in between them. Does that sound like a good time? Wash those up and eat them, man, right? Good stuff, along with, just to add a little bit of dessert to it, pomegranates and figs. Verse 24, that place was called the Valley of Eshkol, the Valley of Cluster, because the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. Now, because of time, we have to stop there. It's going to take us some time to get through this number section to understand where we're going to Deuteronomy, but it's important. And this is kind of a weird place to stop, but here's what I want you to see is everything that God told them true so far. It is. God says everything according to his word, just like it's going to be. He does not lie. Do they have any reason right now not to trust him? No. Now, here's what I want you to do to keep in mind for next week. Anak, the name Anak. Keep it in your mind. In fact, if you want to do a little bit of research on the name Anak online, you can do that. Go to Bible Gateway or something like that. You can find it. The name Anak, and I want you to pay attention where it says, verse 22, in Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants, the children of Anak, were. There's something significant about Anak, and we're going to see that in a minute, because it ends up being the linchpin of this entire situation. So what can we leave with with this one thing here? Uh, number one, God has no problem in testing us. None. None. And if you want to know why, you'll come tonight at 530. Let's pray. God, thank you that you've given us your word to know and to trust and that you test us according to it. Please bless our minds and our understanding as we walk through this incident and reap a great harvest from it. 
so that we will be more obedient to what you've said. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. See all of you tonight at 530. Yes, yeah, a short-term mission trip.